we believe that a speech has the power to change the world and the people in it, including the speaker. Meaning, in order to deliver a transformational speech, our expectation is that the work that the speaker does on that speech needs to change them in some way. If you're the same exact person after you've gone through a full ideation, script development, rehearsal process for a speech that you're going to then take out and deliver for a long period of time, if you're the same person, then it's probably not a deep work speech. It needs to change you in some way. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question Do you consider yourself to be an expert or a visionary? Now, I know that seems like a random question, and I promise you it is not. When I was growing up, which was a while ago now, influence belonged very firmly to those who could amass the most information. Now, I don't know how many of you can remember the Encyclopedia Britannica. Basically, it was a set of books that were said to contain all the information you could ever need. Everything there was to know about pretty much anything in the universe, all in 32 books and 32,640 pages. That seems like a big call now, right? But my parents spent more than they could probably have afforded at the time, buying those books. Why? Because before the internet, before the digital age, it was the best chance that they had of giving my brother and I access to the most powerful resource on the planet at the time, and that is information. Now, how many of us feel like we have a lack of information today? Has anyone sat there thinking, oh, if only I had access to more information on that topic, that product, that person, that point of view? I'm guessing the answer is no. And that brings me right back to where we started, which is the key difference between an expert and a visionary and the importance of figuring out which one you want to be. In today's episode, I speak with Michael Port, New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author, TED speaker, and co-founder and CEO of Heroic Public Speaking. Over the last two decades, Michael has written eight books that have made it onto the bestseller lists, including Steal the Show, Book Yourself Solid, and The Referrable Speaker, which is not too bad for somebody who was told by his fourth grade teacher that he had the worst spelling she'd seen in 25 years of teaching. Over that time, and together with his wife and co-founder, Amy Port, He has also built heroic public speaking worldwide, offering the most complete and effective speaker training in the world, all centered around teaching speakers and presenters what actors have always known, which is how to craft an authentic performance during presentations, pitches, and most importantly, life's high stake moments. Clients include CEOs, founders, admirals, Navy SEALs, FBI agents, Olympians, politicians, the list goes on. Sometimes 
a guest comes onto the podcast and within minutes, you just know you're in for one hell of a ride. And this conversation was one of those. In it, we dive into the difference between Expertsville and Visionary Town and why one of those, I'll let you guess which, is the wrong neighborhood to be in if you want to consistently attract rather than chase opportunities. Why the key to influence and standing out is flipping your mindset from technician to translator. And this one, this one is pivotal. Basically, in Michael's words, committing yourself to answering the questions that Google can't answer. What good enough actually looks like? And I loved this part. One of the questions I get asked over and over again and conversations I find myself in over and over again is about mastery and what that actually looks like. In this chat, we cover the simplest indicator that you have hit that level that you will ever hear. Why learning to give before you get isn't just a nice life philosophy, but one of the most effective business strategies on the planet. Why winging it never works when it comes to impactful communication or presentations, and why the best communicators focus first on figuring out their big promise and working backwards from there. And finally, and this one was a personal request from me, what an old man, a young man, and a donkey have to do with learning to deal with the critics. I loved this conversation for its depth and its breadth on the topic of being seen and heard as an influencer in your space. However, the part that stuck with me the most, and it has stuck with me, was Michael's advice when it comes to dealing with our fear of being criticized. Whether that criticism comes from other people or the voice in our own minds, which, you know, let's face it, is usually louder and more relentless. You'll hear more about it as the conversation goes on, but in essence, it was this. The key to not fearing the critics isn't to stay safe and within your comfort zone, but it's to become less of a critic yourself. Sound way over simple? Try it for a week, I promise you. It is not so easy. In 20 years of staring at that question from a variety of angles, I, I genuinely never thought about it that way. That the amount that we criticize other people for their efforts, either loudly or quietly in our own minds, is automatically the amount that we assume we will be criticized in return. Change the game there and everything else will automatically change. If you are looking to take your journey in influence to the next level right now and any part of this conversation sparks your curiosity, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the brand new version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down in my career to be the most useful when it comes to rapidly increasing your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. My newsletter, Influence Insider, also gives one bite-sized tool, strategy, or mindset shift per week, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto my website, juliemasters.com, to become an insider. As a gift to you, Michael has also made an exclusive resource available to help you up your game as a presenter. It's called 50 Speaker Tips to Wow Your Audience Every Time. As far as I know, it's not available anywhere else online and it is yours to keep. Hop onto the show notes to access the link. On that note, sit back, speed up, drive safe and enjoy the undeniable mastery of the incredible Michael Port.
Welcome to the podcast, Michael Port. Well, thank you so much. Great to have you here. Um, I wanted to kick off with the question that those who have listened for a long time are very familiar with, and that is the question of, is there an idea right now that has captured your attention that's kind of having a lot of influence on your thinking? And the reason I ask is that those, I find those on the fringes of ideas, those who are standing out with their thought leadership or their knowledge tend to find ideas before the rest of us. So what idea has captured you? Well, this is an idea that uh, is not something I'm particularly focused on in my work, but it's something that I'm particularly focused on uh, in my life. And that's the idea that something might be common, but that doesn't mean that it's normal. Something might be common, but it doesn't mean that it's normal. And I started thinking about this idea as I was thinking about uh, Ruby our daughter, who's 12, as she comes into her early teen years. And I was thinking about that conversation that I wanted to have with her about, you know, some of the things that she may experience uh, that she hasn't yet or hasn't recognized that she's experienced yet. And, uh, and I think it, it, that, that idea struck me. I was trying to figure out how do I explain to her all these things that are out in the world that are common but not normal. So when she gets a a cat call or a whistle from some guy on the street, well, that's pretty common, but I don't want her to misunderstand that and think that it's normal. It's not normal. There are so many things like that. When you extrapolate and you start looking around, for example, just because, you know, uh, you you will often get, say, financial advice from people in the financial industry that is not in your best interest. That doesn't that that may be common, but that is is not normal and shouldn't be expected, or or excuse me, accepted as normal. And uh, it just is a healthy reminder not to accept things just because they're common, uh, and and start to conform to normalcy around areas or issues that really are not and should not be normal. You know, you're, you're reminding me of, of that work around kind of neuroplasticity when you, when you accept that you, you wire your brain as you go, you know, we're all wiring and rewiring ourselves as we go. The things that you accept as normal are the things you wire for. Yes. They're the things that become normal in your life. You you develop faster pathways to them and therefore, yes. you know, they tend to happen more and more frequently because you're wired for them. So essentially what you're saying is, you know, there are things that you come across that you need to know how to handle because they're going to come up every once in a while. But you don't want to wire for them. Like that shouldn't be a part of your normal reality that you accept on a on a day-to-day basis. How it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to to frame your children for it. It's another mm-hmm. thing to frame yourself for it. How did you have that conversation? Have you had that conversation? We've had parts of it because I think uh, if I tried to have the entire conversation at once, mm-hmm. I think that might be a little bit overwhelming. So uh, we want to go gradually uh, into the night, I think, uh, on that conversation. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Winston Churchill. He said, it's a mistake to look too far ahead. Only one link in the chain of destiny 
can be handled at a time. Mm. So I just go one link at a time with the kids uh, and try not to get ahead of myself uh, because I have a habit of getting ahead of myself, uh, which I don't think is uncommon for entrepreneurs. We tend to be futuristic and we want to do everything really quickly. Uh, we see the big picture, so we want to get the big picture painted. I uh, want to make sure everybody understands it. And then, you know, everybody just jumps right into that picture. And that's not necessarily um, how everybody will uh, will operate around our ideas. So uh, just slowly, one one small conversation at a time. And for me, it's just pointing it out. If I see something, just noticing and seeing if she notices what I noticed. You know, so I'll ask, what did you notice in that interaction? You know, one of the things that um, that we know about communication is that very often when somebody is trying to influence someone else, they will work really hard at trying to get that other person to say, you're right. So if I was trying to convince you of something, Julie, you know, I would, I, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I wasn't intentional about it. I may try to try to push my idea until you, yes, you're right. You're right. You're right, Michael. But when somebody says you're right in that way, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. What are they really saying? Please stop talking. Yes, that's it. I'm okay. You're right. I'm done. That's what it means. So what we, but instead what we can do is to, is to try to get the people we're hoping to influence to say, oh, that's right. Because if they say that's right, it's also their idea. They're agreeing with the idea, not you as the person who's promoting the idea. And if they buy into the idea, then you have a shared idea, a shared value, which is very different than just trying to get somebody to adopt your idea or your value. There's something almost kind of spatial to that as in, the first, when you're trying to get people to agree to you, it's you versus the other person, right? So it's you facing the other person with the idea between you and, you know, pushing between. The flip that you're talking about in my mind is almost, okay, well, we flip, it's hard to do this over an audio medium, but all right, you come stand next to me and let's look at this idea together. This is not about me, how much you like me, how much you've agreed with me on any other topic. Let's just look at this together and figure out how we feel about this thing. And I loved the language you used there around, did you notice? Did you not, Did you see that thing? Because it gives somebody permission to go, no, or I saw it differently. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that uh, at Heroic Public Speaking we recommend is that, that uh, folks who are trying to influence others do their best to stay away from using absolutes. Now, I understand in the world of marketing, and uh, sort of typical uh, persuasion, there's a school of thought that suggests that you have to have the answers and that you need to show an absolute uh, clear vision uh, with no holes and uh, and that's the way that you're going to convince people to do what you want. Um, but I, I think anybody, you know, that's, that's been out there for a little while recognizes that you know, sometimes the more they push an idea, the more they push people away. And so what we recommend is doing, is doing your best to stay away from absolutes so that you leave room for other people's perspectives. So, for example, when you're giving any, a presentation, instead of saying, you have to do this, 
or everybody thinks this, or this is the way that you, all of those absolute statements um, may create uh, a more combative dynamic between you and the audience because they say, well, I, I have to. Do I really have to? I'm not sure if I have to. So for example, if I said, Julie, no one likes earwax flavored ice cream. At first you might giggle and then you, you might start thinking, well, you know, there was this kid named Fritz in my second grade class. I, he used to put his finger in his ear and, and then in his mouth, I bet you that guy would like earwax flavored ice cream. Well, first of all, I just sent you down a tangent that I don't want to send you down when I'm presenting an idea that is not actually about earwax flavored ice cream. And secondly, you're looking for the whole. It's what we do naturally. You're trying, you, you know, if I said, well, you know, nobody is successful by doing X. And then you go, actually, my sister's boyfriend did that once and he crushed it. You, you can, you, you know, you'll find the outlier and then your credibility is slightly in, damaged because you used an absolute and they found uh, an argument that, that broke that down. So we just say, look, it seems like, or you might consider or it's often the case that, or have you noticed that? So you give people room to say, yeah, I mean, I don't, maybe not always like that, but I have noticed that, or that does seem possible. So you're opening the door, uh, but you're allowing other people to have their own ideas when they come in. I'm also just thinking, <laughs> you know, when you put things out there like absolutes, and as you said, you know, our brain automatically goes to find the outlier. What I've noticed is if you're, if people are thinking, trying to think, oh, have, I, have I got an example of where that's not true? Have I come across that before? They are not listening. As soon as you give somebody's brain a task to do, they stop listening to you. And so that's the other disadvantage with absolutes is that as soon as you put one out there, the entire room stops listening for the duration that it takes them to try and disprove it. You got it. Um, I want to just jump in. I mean, we're, we're here to talk about speaking, which is your era of absolute, you know, genius and wisdom, but it doesn't take, you know, a genius to know that we're also talking about influence here in other realms, other realms of life. And a quote that I got from you is public speaking is notoriously difficult, but good luck trying to avoid it. And it's funny that we're talking about absolutes because then my brain went, well, what do you mean? I'm fairly sure somebody could go their whole life and avoid public speaking. So <laughs> I've basically just proved your point. So tell me what it, tell me what you mean by that statement. Yeah. Well, I say good luck trying to avoid it because maybe they can, but you're going to need a lot of luck because uh, I, I think at some point you're probably going to need to use your uh, voice. And if you don't have a voice that you can use, if you're not able to use a voice, you may use sign language, uh, you may write. There are so many different ways that we communicate and it's not just verbal. Interestingly enough, what's ironic about public speaking is that people often think that your success or failure as a speaker is primarily influenced by what you say. When in fact, audiences are often more influenced by what they see when you're presenting. Meaning, public speaking is a visual medium for the most part. Of course, right now we're, an, we're in an audio-only medium, and so we're using our voices in such a way that 
translates well for this medium. And it does take some skill to develop uh, the ability to use this medium well. But when you're standing on a stage or you're in front of a group of people, their interpretation of you is based not just on what's coming out of your mouth, but the visual experience they have. So for example, if you took say 20 founders, 20 entrepreneurs who were uh, pitching uh, a panel of VCs and you recorded all of the pitches and you turned off the volume so you couldn't hear them. You could only see the pitch. The, the entrepreneur who is most performative is the one who the viewers will think was granted money, was financed. So often the, the folks who are watching uh, public speakers are influenced as much by the physical experience and the visual experience of that person as they are by the ideas that they're sharing. So sometimes we have speakers who will come in and they're very, very performative, but the material's weak. It's very thin. Sometimes we'll have performers come in and their material's very deep. The work is very, very deep, but the performance elements are weak. And so, you know, different, there's no one way to do this. And every performer is different. There's no formula to, uh, to being a great speaker. There is a formula for developing a sustainable career as a speaker. And Andrew Davis and I just wrote a book about it. We spent two years analyzing this, but there isn't one formula that makes a speech work over another. There are certain elements in a speech that, uh, that are consistently present. There are certain aspects uh, of a, a speech in terms of how it's structured that can make it more transformational, but there isn't one way to give a speech. There isn't a cookie cutter formula for actually coming up with the idea for a speech, writing a speech, and then staging and delivering that speech because it is a creative art. So there is a formula for success in the business, but there is not only one way to deliver a transformational experience for an audience. The, the structure elements part that you were just talking about there, the structure of a compelling speech, you know, we're going we're gonna to dive deep into that, but I just wanted to pick up on, you know, the myth that every speech has to be in front of a hundred people, a thousand people. Now, you know, you come from that world. I come from that world. But what we're also talking about here, and I love the language that I've heard you use about this before, which we're talking about life's, you know, high stakes moments. That's right. And we all have high stakes moments, mm -hmm. whether you're having a high stake moment with your children, as we were talking about at the beginning, whether you are having a high stakes moment at work, you're, you're pitching for a raise, whether you're talking to your clients, whatever it is, there are a lot of high stakes moments in life. Why just draw that line for me. What's the line between getting good and you use the language performer, which mm -hmm. is, which is interesting, which we'll get to getting good at this stuff and succeeding in these high stakes moments. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're hundred percent right there. You know, public speaking doesn't uh, only, um, you know, you, you're not only speaking to thousands of people, right? right? That's, that's, that's a very unusual 
environment. It's a very manufactured environment. It's not normal. Speaking of normal, there's really nothing normal about standing on a stage in front of thousands of people giving a speech for an hour where all of those people know that they're not supposed to talk and you're the one who gets to talk. That's not normal at all. <laughs> so, uh, you know, God bless you if that's something that you want to do, but it is not something that anybody should be expected to want to do. In fact, those of us who like being on those stages may actually have some pathology in our brain that, that compels us to be on those stages. And that's, you know, certainly a conversation we can have maybe for another day. But some of the, anytime you have a situation, you're in a scenario where the outcome is important, that's a high stakes situation. So, you know, if I'm sitting and just having a, a chat with uh, with an old friend, well, it's not a very high stakes situation. I'm not particularly worried about how I'm presenting my ideas in that moment. But if you know the CEO of Disney Disney calls me up and says, "Listen, you know we we need some help, you know, working on uh, you know the pitches that we do for uh, for all of our uh, senior team from our creatives." it's probably a really good idea that when I talk to that CEO, I know exactly what I'm going to say before I say it. Because Julie, when's the best time to decide what you're going to say? Probably about a week before you say it. Probably before you say it. So yes, you know, improvisation is a wonderful skill to develop, but uh, let's not confuse improvisation with winging it. Those are two totally different things. You create spontaneous moments in a performative environment or a high stakes situation when, when the preparation that you've done intersects with the improvisation that you do in the moment in response to something that occurs on the ground. But without the preparation, you're just winging it because <laughs> you don't have a track to get back on. You're just hoping it goes well. And in the military, they say you're not going to rise to the occasion, you fall back on your training or your preparation. Uh, and the same thing is true in any high stakes situation. We're always going to fall back on the preparation we do. So, you know, sometimes people are anxious about giving speeches and, and they'll often ask, what do I do to reduce my anxiety? And, you know, there are for some people for whom a beta blocker actually is really helpful, at least, uh, you know, to get themselves going. I've never taken one, but I've been told that they can be really effective. But for most of us, we're not going to have access to prescription drugs to calm us down before a speech. So we're going to have to figure out how, to, how, how we do it ourselves. And there are two things that I think we can do to reduce our anxiety anytime we're in a high-stakes situation. Number one, we can focus on the outcome we're trying to create rather than on the approval that we think we need to get. So instead of focusing on approval, focus on producing results. Instead of trying to prove your credibility or prove that you're interesting or you're important, instead, focus on the work that you're going to do, the outcomes you're going to create, the benefits of that work. You know, it's interesting. There are, there are some entertainers who are very, very well known for their deep work. Meryl Streep's a great example. And there are some entertainers 
who are known for their personality and not their deep work. I won't throw out any names. I'll just let, you know, the audience come up with their own because I don't want to be critical of somebody. And, and I think the same thing is true when you're developing your own personal brand as an entrepreneur or a CEO or as an intrapreneur inside an organization. Very often what I see people do when they start thinking about developing intellectual property to give speeches or start to move into thought leadership or or just trying to build a brand, uh, you know, based on, you know, your area of expertise. Sometimes what I see them do is focus initially on proving that they're credible, proving that they're important, proving that they know what they're doing, marketing themselves as an expert, when in fact experts are a dime a dozen. And in fact, expertise has been commoditized. The last thing I would ever want to do is call myself an expert. And the last thing I want to be called is, is an expert. Because if you turn on YouTube, you can find an expert, you know, who can teach you almost anything about almost anything you could possibly ever want to learn. Uh, So, and I can get back to what the solution is and how to get out of expertville uh, because in expertville, you know, I think you, you become a commodity and, and when you're a commodity, your value decreases. But because most people live in Expertville, they think that they need to prove their expertise and they do it by trying to, you know, beef up their credentials and promote their credentials. When in fact, what gets people interested are the ideas that you have and the work that you do. And so one of the things that we focus on in the referable speaker is the concept of making the leap out of expertville and into what we call visionary town. Now, as I mentioned, expertville is, is overcrowded. Everybody in expertville has a solution to a typical problem. There are six tips for this seven secrets here, but then guess what? Someone comes along and they got six secrets. So you're like, Oh no, now I got to come up with something else. There's tips, hacks, um, secrets, you know, uh, most of the folks in Expertville are focusing on how to type content, introducing current best practices. So here's how, you know, this is done today. These are the best ways to do it. It can all be very, very helpful. You know, I'm trying to learn, uh, I'm trying to learn how to sketch. And if I wanted to learn how to sketch a boat, I could probably go on YouTube and say how to sketch a boat. And I could find a kind of formulaic approach to sketching a boat. And that may help me get started, but that's certainly uh, not going to uh, make me a creative artist. And it's certainly not going to be the reason that anybody looks at my boat and says, wow, I I got a, this is the most beautiful boat I've ever seen. That's not where, that's not how you learn how to do it. In, In visionary town, the grass is much greener. The fields uh, are, uh, are wide open and you see thought leaders frolicking, uh, you know, in the fields and lounging in cafes because they are challenging the status quo. They are offering new approaches and they're demonstrating what the future could be like. Whereas the expert is demonstrating what it is right now. The expert is saying, here's what the world is right now, and here are the solutions that we have. The expert says, I want to solve a bigger, more intractable problem. And I don't necessarily 
suggest that I'm going to have every single answer, but I'm going to change the way you feel about this, change the way you think about it, and maybe even change what you do about it, all by outlining alternative approaches, by asking questions that Google cannot answer. Because if Google can answer the questions that you are posing as a thought leader, you're living squarely in Expertville. And competition is tough, and it's very hard to stand out. That's why most folks in, in Expertville spend much of their time trying to outmarket each other. Whereas the visionary doesn't need to do that. I mean, you know, Cal Newport is a great example of someone who does this kind of work. Cal Newport, in fact, wrote the book called Deep Work. Cal Newport doesn't have social media uh, at all. Uh, he doesn't market himself uh, other than give a few TED Talks here or there when he can, uh, do some interviews in the New York Times. All of these opportunities coming by request. Why? Because his work is transformational and people talk about his work. So until people are talking about the work you're doing, I personally wouldn't waste any time marketing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't waste any time marketing until people are talking about the work. I, I wouldn't do, meaning I wouldn't do any marketing until I'm produced the product and gotten the product out in the world so that other people are talking about it. So that's the marketing. Meaning if I'm working on a speech, I'm not going to try to market that speech. I'm not going to try to sell that speech to the broad uh, community, uh, you know, that I would normally speak for. What I would do is I would take that speech to a few different venues uh, and I would start to workshop it after a long rehearsal period. And I would workshop it on smaller stages until I started developing what we call stage side leads. Stage side leads are the only indicator of a speech's success because you really don't know if your speech is working until you start getting people coming up to you after you deliver it, saying things like, Julie, that totally blew my mind, changed the way I see the world. Are you available on March 23rd? Because we've got an event in Provo, Utah. We'd love to have you keynote it. Are you available? What's your fee? That's a stage side lead. That lead will close faster with fewer objections at higher fees than any other lead that you'll get. Now, it may come in right after you walk off the stage. It may come in, you know, via email the next day. An assistant may call you up. My, my boss saw you. She really wants you to come and speak at, at our next uh, event. But the sooner that lead comes from this time you gave the speech, the more likely that lead will close and for a higher fee, for those of you who are speaking, you know, for fees. But uh, if you're not speaking for fees, the same thing is true. Stateside leads are always going to be the indicator of whether or not your speech is working. There's two parts in that. I'm kind of jumping around in my brain. Two parts in that. Number one, I love the stage side lead thing. I remember, you know, because I've been in this industry for 20 years now, right from knowing nothing to hopefully knowing just like a little bit now and, and relearning every day. But I, I've been asked a, num a number of times, you know, what does good enough look like? Because someone would say, you know, how do I get on that stage or how do I get on that platform? And Somebody else would reply, well, you, you just, you know, you need to be good enough. And there's that question, well, what does, what does good enough look like? And I developed an answer years ago because the question just came up so often. And my answer was when every single thing that you do creates two or three other opportunities. Yeah. That's, that's the good enough point. That's right. That is the point where you have mastered your craft to 
the degree that everything you do creates two or three more opportunities than you know. Until then, you're still in mastering your craft mode. That's right. So you better like double down on that. That's right. So that's that's number one, and that's just an you know absolutely absolutely to to what you just said. the The other part of it, the other part of it, when we when you were talking about too much information, you know, we've just we've all got information. We're like we're drowning in the stuff. And that idea from Expertsville to Visionary Town, which is, you know, you need to stop being a technician. There's a lot of technicians out there. There's a lot of people who, as you said, are providing information. And you need to step into kind of that that translator bit, that bit where you take the information, put it together, mash the clues, bring it all, and then present a new version of reality for somebody, that kind of transition to translator journey. What's How do you make that leap? You know, I've got so many questions for you here on speaking, but while we're here, this is a really important place. Mm -hmm. How do you make that leap from Mm -hmm. expert to visionary? Sure. So generally what we find is that experts start with solutions and visionaries start with questions. Meaning, ask a question, as I said before, that Google can't answer and then go on an investigation to uncover a solution that challenges the status quo. And should it be your question or your target market's question? Where do you find that question? Well, it's, it's the question that, if answered, solves a really critical problem for your audience. But they may not know what question to ask because often before people have full context uh, of a, of a particular craft, they don't even know what questions to ask. So for example, at heroic public speaking, we believe that a speech has the power to change the world and the people in it, including the speaker. Meaning in order to deliver a transformational speech, our expectation is that, the work that the speaker does on that speech needs to change them in some way. If you're the same exact person after you've gone through a full ideation, script development, rehearsal process for a speech that you're going to then take out, uh, you know, and, and deliver for a long period of time, if you're the same person, then it's probably not a deep work speech. It needs to change you in some way. And, and that's not a, that's not something that, you know, anybody who's going into speaking is probably, I mean, maybe somebody is, but it's unlikely that most people are asking themselves that, how do I develop a speech that change me as well as the people in the audience? So, so I I can't lead with that. It's not going to work. You know, for example, one of the big philosophy at HPS is that, you know, we encourage folks to stop speaking and start performing because speaking generally means throw up a PowerPoint, put some slides on it, use it as your notes, go in there, wing it using the PowerPoint to help guide you. You you'll use your adrenaline to get really pumped up and you'll go, I hope the audience is, is a good audience tonight. You'll leave going who, okay. wasn't that bad. People go, Oh, I like that story about this. I like that story about that. And then you convince yourself that you did a fantastic job. Meanwhile, it was much lower than what you're actually capable of because you didn't put that much work into it. 
one of the things I mentioned before is that there were two things that people often, uh, there are two things that I tell people when they ask about, well, how do I reduce my anxiety? The first was don't focus on approval, just focus on trying to produce results. And the second was to actually know what you're going to do before you do it, because then you can evaluate your performance based on whether you did what you intended to do. And if you did what you intended to do, you go, I, I can feel good about the work that I did. Now, I've noticed that there are some areas that need some work. Now I can go work on those areas. You know, Andrew Davis is, is my co-author on The Referable Speaker, and we were chatting yesterday. He called me because there's a, he's working on a signature bit for a new speech. He does a new speech every year. And he wanted some support around it, a little brainstorming. And we were talking, and I said, well, uh, you know, how, what's the response been to the speech thus far? And he said, well, I just did it. Uh, for a breakout, meaning he did the keynote with his regular speech. They paid him his full fee. And then he said, hey, I'm also happy to do a breakout with some new material because I'd like to work on it and I won't charge you anything. And they said, oh my God, that's incredible. So they got this extra session. And, uh, and I said, so how was it? He said, well, I would score, I probably on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, I'd scored about a one. But I know what I want to work on now. You see, He's only, he's hundred percent focused on the work itself. He doesn't feel bad because he went in doing exactly what he planned to do. And it, and he knows how, what needs to be improved. So he's just not caught up in whether or not he was good or whether they liked him. And he went, I said, my plan is to go in and work this new material. I'm going to focus on these two sections. I want to get a, I want to film the audience so I can watch their response to those sections afterwards. And then I can keep working on those seconds to try to prove them for next time. And maybe I can get to a two out of 10. And then the next time a three and a four and a five. And it may take him a year to get that speech to a 10 out of 10. But anything worth doing generally takes some time to do. I mean, that, that just makes me so happy. That level of commitment to mastery. No, it does. Yeah. Because you're looking for, you know, for anyone that's listening, you're looking at taking your life's body of work you know, in your career, it might not be your life's body of work, it might be the last two years. But if you believe you have something that is useful enough to say that you want to take to a stage or stand in front of five people, 15 people, 500 people, whatever, and say it, then firstly, let's just do that justice. Like you have sweated blood and tears for this information. Let's do it justice. Secondly, you know, the if you're going to put it out there, as you said, divorce yourself from it, you're, you're getting forensic about it. What is it about this at work? Where are the, like energy map it, where are the ups, where are the downs? What, what happened there? Yeah. And, and kind of move yourself out of, as you said, approval. But the other part is that I love about what you were just saying is he gave before he asked, which I think is a flip that most people miss. He gave before he asked. I mean, there's a lot of people that I work with that have to speak or influence at scale and they're not getting paid to do so. Mm -hmm. They're doing it for their industry. They're doing it for their work. And there are, you know, there's a percentage that do get paid to go out there in the world and speak. Either way, if it's the path you want to take, give before you ask. You know, approach your industry body. Approach um, a client and say, hey, you know, I've got this, I've got this thing that I'm working on. If you want to get 10 people around a round table, I promise you the information is going to be the best that I can bring you, but this is the first time I will have done it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd love to do it with you. Yes. Like give it out yeah. before you expect the world to come kind of beaten down, yeah. beaten down your door. Yeah. We don't think you get speeches. We think you earn them. But 
but I would encourage folks uh, to to wipe the slate clean, meaning sometimes, you know, we work with a lot of folks who come out of really interesting positions, you know, very senior positions at large companies or, you know, maybe they were a Navy SEAL or an astronaut or, you know, something uh, where they were operating at the highest level of their field. And sometimes they think uh, that that previous experience is going to make them effective on the stage. And it would be like saying just because uh, someone was a professional football player that they could just automatically play baseball. It's really, I mean, we've seen the best athletes in the world try to make those transitions. uh, And it's really, really difficult to do because it's a totally different craft. So you may know a lot about sports, but, you know, in the same thing here, you may know a lot about your field, your industry, your content may be strong, but the ability to deliver it in a long form speech, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, is very different than operating in the field that you were in previously. And so there's really four different categories of speakers. In fact, this is how meeting planners categorize their speakers when they're when they're uh, booking a conference, some of them know that they're doing it until you know in, uh, intentionally, and others are doing it uh, probably unintentionally. But they see how conferences are organized, so they're kind of copying. You know, there's different levels of meeting planners, just like there's different levels of of uh, speakers or doctors or lawyers, and uh, and the the first three categories are, are are probably out of reach for most of us. So when I share the first three categories, I don't want people to be discouraged if they don't think that they fit into one of those categories and, and, not, and think that there isn't a place for them. The fourth category is open, but you got to earn it. So the first category are the actors, athletes, and astronauts. Will Smith, Serena Williams, Mark Kelly, <clears throat> their job is to put butts in seats and they get paid an enormous amount of money half a million dollars to sit down and have a 45 minute interview on a stage and they've earned it doing something else, but they put butts in seats. Most of us will never be in that category. The second category are the A-list alternates. Now the A-list alternates are people whose names you might not immediately recognize, but when you hear the next four to six words after their name, you know exactly who they are. So if I said, Yancey Strickler. Most people wouldn't know. Do you know who Yancey Strickler is? No, I don't. Yeah, so Yancey Strickler is the founder of Kickstarter. Wow. Right. So the next four to six words tell you exactly who that is. And if you were in the startup world or the tech world, you'd probably want to hear what Yancey Strickler has to say. So that's an A-list alternate. The third cat, most of us are probably not going to be in that category either. The third category of speaker is the industry icon. So the CEO of Domino's Pizza might be an industry icon, but that CEO of Domino's Pizza is not going to be particularly appealing uh, to a meeting planner who's putting on a health and wellness conference. Like, ladies and gentlemen, health and wellness from the CEO of Domino's Pizza, probably not going to be a big draw. But that industry icon in an industry that they're related to is a huge draw. Maybe some of us will be that person, but 
still pretty, you know, if you haven't become that person yet, it may be out of reach. But the third category, or fourth category rather, is the category that we can all um, achieve. And it's the meeting planner's absolute favorite category. This is the category they want to book more than anything else. This is the surprise and delight speaker. This is the speaker that the audience doesn't really know. I mean, maybe, I mean, this person may have had a New York Times bestseller, but they're still not um, well-known enough uh, to cause a lot of um, excitement uh, when they walk into a mall. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just like you and me and the rest of us who are trying to go out there and do deep work. But this speaker, this surprise and delight speaker, brings a combination of insight and entertainment that the speakers in the first three categories just cannot do. So the, 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 the first category, the Will Smiths of the world, he's going to be charming and funny and delightful, and he'll have some great ideas. And I don't mean to knock Will as a, as a speaker on the keynote circuit. Will Smith is one of my heroes. I think he's incredible in a thousand different ways as an artist. Um, but he doesn't really have to worry about the speech that he's delivering because he's Will Smith. So you want to get that picture with him. You're like, oh my God, I saw Will Smith. It was incredible. He told the story about the time his dad made him do the bricks. It was really cool. Uh, and the same thing with the A-list alternate. It's going to be an interesting story and you might get some, you know, some interesting insights, but is it going to be incredibly entertaining and change the way you see the world for the rest of your life? Maybe, maybe not. And then the industry uh, icon, you know, the CEOs of Domino's Pizza just thinks, well, I'm the CEO of Domino's Pizza. I'm just going to tell them what to do. And then, you know, uh, I'm just thinking it's a man because he's going to be obnoxious and go like, hey, here's what you got to do. You got to eat the pizza. You got to make the pizza with, the, you know, but uh, it's the accent that makes it work. But, um, but that fourth category of speaker is able to bring this incredible balance between the entertainment value and the insight so that the audience they're thrilled they got the picture with the with the celebrities but they go back home and they say oh my god i just saw julie masters she totally blew my mind let me tell you why who is she i don't know it's just nice lady um i'll show you online afterwards i bought her book too so it's like in my bag we're gonna that's our, our next reading i'm reading it first then you can read it after me but let me tell you, and then she starts drawing out on a, on a napkin the concept that you shared with your contextual model, and that's what they talk about. Then, uh, you know, the, uh, 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 she goes back to the office and says, listen, I just saw this woman, Julie Masters, totally blew my mind. We've got to get her for our conference because what she's talking about is exactly what we need to do. And they say, wasn't Will Smith at that conference? Yeah, he was so adorable. Look at the picture. Oh, my God, he's so funny. But Julie is someone we got to get in touch with right now. The surprise and delight speaker is also the meeting planner's favorite because they're a heck of a lot cheaper. Even if they charge 25 grand or 30 grand, they're still a drop in the bucket for a big conference compared to the other category of speakers. And they're a professional. They know how to work as a professional. They don't have to deal with handlers and diva behavior and trying to coordinate, you know, taking the green M&Ms out of the, out of the M&M bowl. They just get a pro who can, they say, listen, Julie, I want to book you for 15 events this year. We've got all these different conferences. You're my go-to speaker on X. Can we do it? Can I get a little discount for all 15? You're like, yeah, sure. No problem. That's the surprise and delight speaker who creates a transformational experience by changing the way people feel, the way they think, 
and the way they act. And that speaker will work always. And lastly, I want to say this, the reason that speaker keeps working is because people want to see it at their events after they've seen it at some other event, or they recommend it to somebody else. So you only need to get a few first gigs if you deliver a referable speech, because those gigs are going to produce stage side leads. So let's just do the math quickly. If you do one gig today and you get four leads, because that's what you should be going for. Every time you do a speech, the goal is four stage side leads. And then you want to be booking at about 50%. Because if you're booking higher than 50%, meaning you're closing 100% of, of the leads, then your fee is probably too low. If you're booking only like 20%, your fee might be too high, or there may be some other problem in the sales uh, process. But generally, 50% is a, is a good number. We've found historically, the data bears it out that uh, once you start to get to 50%, you can start to push your fee up and keep working at that 50% uh, conversion ratio, and your fee will get higher and higher uh, over time. But let's say you get four leads and you book two of those. Well, now you got two more gigs you do. And each of those two gigs, you get four more leads. That's a total of eight leads. You book four of those. Now you do four gigs. You get four leads at each gig. That's 16 leads. Now you book eight of those. This is why uh, we profiled, um, when we asked a, a speaker that we profiled in the book, uh, Elliot Eisenberg, who's an economist and very funny, which I suppose is an oxymoron. When we asked him, what do you do for marketing? He said, I pick up the phone. He does about 110 gigs a year, 100% referral-based from people who either saw him or uh, who were told by someone who saw him that they should hire him. So you only need to do a little bit of work to get those first few gigs if the speech is a referable gig because the speech will produce more gigs. And then you build a healthy referral tree uh, over time and you keep adding on new, what we call fractals, you could call them markets, uh, new small verticals or new small markets uh, because, you know, if you speak for attorneys, well, there's probably going to be an accountant in there somewhere who says, you know what, I've got an event that I'm the, on the committee uh, for for an accounting association. This would be perfect for us. Uh, are you available on this date? What's your fee? Boom. You just picked up a new market because they invited you into that market. I also want to just take it out of the speaking world just for a second, because, you know, absolutely in the speaking world, that is how you build, you know, a million dollar speaking business. But also if you if you work within an organization or you have your own organization and you're using speaking, using getting on stages to build opportunities, exactly the same thing applies. 100%. You know, if you're getting on the right stages and you have mastered this craft well enough, every time you get on that stage, it should create, let's use your number, it should create four opportunities for your business that you can then close. So the same applies. Yeah regardless of the outcome, if you're mastering your craft and you're on the right stages. Yeah. I want to, I want to kind of pull back a little bit here to the craft yes. for a second. Sure. Because there were so many questions. I mean, so much language you used there, contextual model, you know, I could talk to you about this all day, but I want to go to the craft for a second. And I just want to talk about structure because one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, you know, what does, what does a great speech look like? How, what is, how do I become a great presenter? And the first reply I always give is, is structure. It's structure. You know, as you said, don't wing it. You don't pick up a guitar without learning the chords first and think that you're just going to, you know, maestro your way to something beautiful. You're not. You're going to learn the foundational moves and the foundational moves always stay the same. So let's talk about the foundational moves, the core chords of a great presentation. Is there 
a particular structure that you work with or the elements that mm-hmm. you use? Yeah, so we use a number of different processes to give people a way in. As I said earlier, we don't think there's only any one way to do creative work. So our goal is to give our students as many different processes as possible to get into the development process uh, to then find their own voice uh, and their own structure uh, throughout. Because again, it's not formulaic in terms of how you develop a speech. You know, for example, they say, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. Yes, I I could see the value in that formula in some circumstances, but it's absolutely not necessary to do. In fact, you know, imagine you turned on the television when you were about to watch an episode of Breaking Bad. And, you know, Brian Cranston is there at the beginning, he's the lead actor, and he says, listen, let me tell you what's going to happen in this episode. And he walks you through the whole thing. And they go, okay, enjoy. You're going to be like, what? I, what? I, what? It's the real, I can't, do you watch trailers, you know, like coming next week? Never. Because if you watch that, you're going to know what happens and you don't want to know what happens. It takes all the fun out of it. There's no wonder or sense of, of there's no thrill or sense of excitement or curiosity gap. So you don't need to tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. You can take them on a journey. I just say that because, a lot of the things that you read about speaking um, are not necessarily rules of thumb. They're just tactics or tips that, you know, authors who write content pieces for blogs recycle again and again. Like, start with a story. Well, no, not really, always. And we also probably want to start with a good story that is connected to our big idea that has a moment of reflection. And so it's more nuanced than I think the the way we often treat it. But there are a few elements that do exist in a great pitch or a speech or an argument. uh, And I'd love to detail them for you uh, briefly. We certainly could talk about them for weeks, but Um, But there are five foundational elements that we see exist in most great speeches and pitches um, or arguments. And the first is a big idea. Now, a big idea doesn't need to be different to make a difference. It just needs to be true for the people that you serve. It needs to resonate with them. Um, But if you're only worried about being different, you're probably going to come up with something that nobody really wants. So number one, a big idea. And we, we uncover this big idea by going on an investigation and asking a question that Google can't answer. Number two, a promise to the audience. Every speech or pitch has some sort of promise. And we want to be really clear about what that promise is. Number three, being able to articulate, being able to demonstrate, illustrate how the world looks to the people in the room. Because even if, as a, as a speaker or thought leader uh, in sales, it doesn't matter what you're doing, if the, even if your solution is exactly what they need, but they don't think you understand them, they'll walk. They go, yeah, 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 that's, that's great. You, but you don't understand my, my, I'm different. My situation is different. I, you, I get what you're saying. It's probably right, but you don't get me. Now, If they feel like, wow, you understand me, you get me, you know exactly what I'm going through. In fact, you're even empathetic. Wow, that's going to go a long way. So number one, the big idea. Number two, the promise. Number three, being able to demonstrate what the world looks like to the people in the room. Number four, being able to articulate 
the consequences of not adopting the big idea and achieving the promise in a way that resonates with them, that doesn't feel accusatory or, or punitive in some way, but really does address the reality of the consequences of not adopting the big idea and achieving the promise. And then lastly, but certainly not least, being able to demonstrate, illustrate, articulate the rewards of adopting the big idea and achieving the promise from a financial perspective or from a physical perspective or emotional perspective or even a spiritual perspective. And it's going to, that'll be different depending on what you're addressing and who you're addressing. But those five elements exist in, in, in speeches and pitches. In fact, we had a student a few months ago who runs sales for a large organization and he gives speeches like many uh, people who work inside companies to advance the brand of the business. And uh, he sent us a letter. He said, hey, you know, I, I tried that foundational five thing, but I tried it in a sales pitch for a, cl for a, a potential client that we were having trouble closing. It was about a year and a half we were working on this deal and it was a big deal and we just couldn't get any traction. So I said, I'm going to throw out everything I've done. I'm just going to use that foundational five, organize my pitch around those five elements and see what happens. They closed $50 million in business that day. Oh my goodness. Now I should say, you know, not all, not typical of all results. $50 million is a lot of dollars. That's a good 24 hours in anybody's day. Yeah, and I can cherry pick examples. But I'm just saying that this, this framework, if you walk your ideas through, if you walk your argument through, you'll feel really quite comfortable that you've got all your bases covered. And even if you're just having a conversation with somebody about your idea, if you know those five elements, you can have a conversation in three seconds, 30 seconds, three minutes, three hours, three weeks. It doesn't matter because you can continue to address those elements, the big idea, the promise, the uh, the way the world looks to the audience, the consequences of not adopting the big idea and achieving the promise, and then the rewards of adopting the big idea and achieving the promise. I want to double back on the promise just for a second because the, the other four, you know, they feel they feel pretty clear to me. The promise itself, you're not saying to literally, you know, get up in front of people and go, you know, I promise you, or are you? Mm -mm. Is that the... Is that the language? How do we frame the promise just from a yeah. planning perspective? So I use the word promise intentionally because it often, uh, it often elicits that question because it's a little provocative. You know, a promise. A promise uh, means different things to different people. I believe that your reputation is built on your ability to make commitments and fulfill them. So I don't use the word promise when, uh, when I'm doing project work, I don't say, when do you promise to have this to me? It just feels weird to people. If you ever, you know, if you, if you think about it, I say, when I say, what commitment will you make, right? What, what date will you commit to or what deliverable will you commit to? Uh, and then if you make commitments and fulfill them and you keep doing that, people will trust you. It's a pretty simple process. If you make commitments, but don't fulfill them, nobody trusts you. If you won't make any commitments, Nobody will play with you. So, you know, that doesn't work either. Um, so in this particular case, let's say I was doing a speech on speaking and I, I was going to make a promise. I can absolutely promise. I have, I have never lost a, a student. I can promise that I can help anyone be better at public speaking. I can make that promise 
without any hesitation whatsoever. And I imagine in your work, there are things that you can make a promise uh, around with as much confidence. I have no doubt. I will not promise that I can make someone as effective as Martin Luther King Jr. I can't do that. I can't promise that someone's going to turn into Martin Luther King Jr., but I can promise that they can get better. Uh, you know, someone once said to me, you know, Michael, I, I saw someone who went through one of your training programs, and I mean, they were fine, but I didn't think they were like the best speaker I ever saw. I said, did you see them before they started? Because that's the litmus test you should be using. Uh, that's our job here is not to make people the same. Our job is to make people better than they are today in service of the goals that they have. Not everybody has the same goals. Uh, and so that's critically important. But, but I think that it's, it really is, it means a lot to an audience and to a speaker. And I think it becomes transformational for you as a speaker when your intellectual property is so strong that you can make a promise you can stand behind. I can't promise somebody that they'll make an exact amount of money speaking. I can't that, you know, I can't do that. I'm not going to promise somebody that they'll double their fee. That would be insane. Does it happen? Yes. Do I expect people are going to be more successful if they get better at it? Of course. So I think that if you're clear on what you're comfortable promising and what you're comfortable not, then you have a clear delineation between the two. And it's, it's not an issue. It's not a question for you. And either way, you know, it's an interesting reflection point for you as somebody who has is obviously stepping into the place of master of your craft of, you know, I have ideas worth sharing. Well, that would be the litmus test, right? Like if these ideas are worth, worth sharing, what are you prepared to stand behind? That's right. What shift or transformation or increase do you believe 100% is possible? And you have seen it. You've walked that road. You've held the hand of other people who have gone down that road as you have hundreds of times. What's the what's the number one mistake that people make when they're when they approach the craft of putting together a speech? Hmm. Well, I, th I think that depends on on who we're talking about and what type of speech they're they're working on. But I think I can give you some generalizations that would apply. And I think one of them is that because you're a subject matter expert that's enough to deliver a transformational experience. Uh, generally, it is not. It can certainly happen. You, you know, you can create a transformational experience uh, every once in a while uh, because all the stars align without a lot of work, but it's hard to repeat it. And one of the things that, um, that we know contributes to mastery is the ability to reliably deliver at that level again and again and again. Look, Julie, this is why if you want a front row ticket to Hamilton on Broadway, you're going to pay a few thousand dollars. But if you want a front row ticket to an improv uh, show, you're only going to pay maybe 15 or 20. Now, if Will Ferrell, if, if, if Will is there and Tina Fey is there and Amy Poehler is there, you're going to pay a lot because now they're celebrities. But the reason that it's a big difference is because every single time the cast of Hamilton put on that show, it works. Because they have spent between, from when uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda started working on it to now, it's over 10 years. It took him one year just to write the song, My Shot. So every time they deliver it, 
it works because they've been working on it for so long. But at the, at the improv night, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. A couple skits will be funny. A couple of them will really bomb, but you're like, it's fine. It's 15 bucks. I'm here with friends. We're fooling around. It's a nice night. You're not going to spend $2,000 on those improv night tickets unless you know it's going to work. And so I think that this idea that uh, just because, you know, you understand your material and you're charming and people tell you that you have the gift for the gab, that that's enough to really create a transformational experience that people will remember and talk about uh, or that will earn you stateside leads is a mistake that I've seen people make again and again and again and again. So uh, the amount of uh, preparation that you think you need to deliver a transformational experience, I would generally multiply that by probably a factor of 10. So just to, to highlight that, if you believe you need a day to prepare for this opportunity, if that's what you framed in your head, then in actual fact, you need 10 Correct. Minutes. And so take it out further. If you think you need a month, which is what most people do when they think about preparing a speech that's, say, a 60-minute speech, really they need 10 months. That's a huge amplification. Yes. And I think that it gives credence to how important every single detail mm -hmm. is when you're looking again at the mastery of this yeah. you know the, the pauses the stories the the energy map did the audience come forward did they move backwards a little bit just then and it also gives credence to the getting it out there yeah. giving it trying it doing it over and over again correct it's a little bit like what a comedian does when they're working on material so generally when you see a comedy special on netflix or hbo that's material that that comedian has been working on for the better part of a year, if not longer. And they may even pull material that's five years old into that new speech. Uh, and I think getting comfortable with the discomfort that comes with the creative process of improving something like a speech or a performance is very important. So I heard a season sorry on NPR a number of years ago, and he was talking about the most inf in impactful moment that he had as a young comedian. And it was, it was at a comedy club, small little comedy club in New York city. Uh, when he was a young comedian, Chris Rock showed up to do a set. Now, Chris Rock was uber famous at the time and, uh, and one of Aziz's heroes. And Chris Rock went out there with some notes, did a couple jokes, bombed about as badly as you could imagine, he got maybe one or two chuckles because he was Chris Rock. The only reason they didn't throw things at him was because he was Chris Rock. And when he walked off stage, uh, a, a C saw him walking down the stairs, cracking up. And, and he's like, Oh, oh, oh wow. Wow. So, um, yeah, that didn't seem to go as well as I would have thought it would go. And Chris Rock is like, Oh man, I bombed. That's the greatest thing that happened to me. Cause now I know those things aren't going to work. And I got to, and I know what to go work on. So, you know, professionals, people who have a mastery over the craft are not uncomfortable with the fact that most of what they do doesn't work. This is a critical difference in how the performing artist thinks about their work versus how the corporate artist thinks about their work. Because in the corporate world, you're told, I need this deliverable by Tuesday at five o'clock. You better know how to do it. Don't be ask me any questions. Just sit down, get it done, deliver, client ready, go. It's horrible. No mistakes allowed, ever. But the only way that you create 
a transformational experience for an audience is by making hundreds, if not thousands of choices that you do not keep in search of stronger choices that are more effective. So our job is just to make really big, bold, high stakes choices early and often, and then decide if it works, we keep it. If it's not working, we make another choice. That choice leads me to the next choice. And in doing that, you're sharpening your sword, but also what I'm thinking about is you you strengthen your armor Correct. as well. Yes. Because you just reminded me of a moment probably about two years ago now, I had to go and give a speech. It was about 100, um, 100 people in the audience. It was a 10-minute speech. I'd never given it before. I was asked to answer a particular question. I'd put in as much work as I could, but I'd literally never even said those words before in front of an audience. And I took my one of my closest friends and we're walking into this kind of little theater and she said, are you, are you nervous? And I said, you know, no, a little bit. I was like, but, you know, honestly, I've sucked so many times before. <laughs> I'm kind of impervious to it now. And not in the way that I'm not going to do my work. Yeah. And not in the way that I don't care. Yes. And not in the way that I'm not going to bring the fullest of myself and I'm going to show up as hard as I can. But my armor is strong. Yes. Because I've shown up so many times before and sucked to various yes. degrees so many times yeah. before oh, that this isn't going to define me. Yes. This moment isn't going to define right. me. There are three kinds of speakers. Those that have bombed. Those that haven't yet bombed, but will. And those that bombed, but lie about it. Uh, I am squarely in the first category. I have absolutely bombed. Uh, you know, there's one of one of my one of my favorite autobiographies is from Steve Martin. It's called Born Standing Up. It is one of the most honest autobiographies I've ever read. He is an artist's artist. This guy is just extraordinary. And, and the breadth of his work has just been fascinating. But one of the things he said that had the greatest influence on him as a youngster was in high school, he had a girlfriend, his first girlfriend, and he was crazy about her, absolutely nuts about her. And during that time, he was working at a carnival. Uh, he, he, he lived near Disney, so he worked at Disney too. So he was like a, kind of like a, he did magic and other vaudevillian type stuff as a teenager, started pretty young. But he was sitting at a stool, heartbroken, all by himself after his girlfriend dumped him. And he said to this old magician, you could probably call him a carny type, said to this old, you know, rascally character, um, you know, that he was feeling a little blue. And the guy said, why? He said, well, my girlfriend broke up with me. And the old carny said, oh yeah, that'll happen. And then he just walked away. And Steve Martin said, it changed his whole outlook because he said, oh, wait, you mean I get to have more girlfriends? This is incredible. And so he realized that it wasn't the end of the world, that it's actually normal to have to get to like have a girlfriend and then you don't have a girlfriend and then you get another girlfriend and then you, she breaks up with it. It's like, okay. It doesn't mean that you're inherently broken. Correct. That you inherently can't do this Correct. stuff that everybody else seems to And that you'll never to get to do it again. 
And in fact, sometimes when somebody loses a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or partner, they go, wait a minute, I get to do this better. I get another chance. And so I think that's the opportunity that you have uh, when you're performing is, is not to expect that it will ever be perfect. It will always be broken somewhere in some way. You will trip over yourself. You will drool on yourself. You will split your pants on stage at some point. You'll forget to zip your pants up. You'll wear your mic pack into the bathroom. These are all things that either I or my wife have done at one point or another, or almost every speaker has done. You, you, you probably have done at least one of these things at some point. Uh, not the, the, the sound pack into the bathroom thing. For those of you listening, you, when you're speaking, you put on your mic, they mic you up and then they leave you usually for about half an hour before you go on and you always need the toilet. And the biggest fear is that someone's going to push something they shouldn't and it's going to be broadcast to the entire room or the entire auditorium. I live in such fear of that, that that has never happened, but so many other things just to speak to it. Recently, I was on a on a panel. I had to interview these people on these panels. I went to stand up at the end and realized that my leg had gone dead. And I'm wearing high heels on a stage in front of hundreds of people. And I suddenly realized that I can't I can't stand up. Oh no! <laughs> this is so exciting. Everybody what happened? Leaving. Everyone, everybody else is walking off the stage and the whole room's looking at me like, why isn't she leaving? And I know that if I stand, I'm going to fall. And so I had to call the MC over to help me walk off the stage. I mean, is that not... That's great. That's fantastic. Humiliating moment. Oh, I think that's so fantastic. So just to, just to back you yeah. up, like this, it is going to, you, you know, if you're going to put yourself out there, if you're going to stand up, if you're going to be seen, if you're going to be heard, yeah. if you're going to offer and contribute then these things are going to happen. Yeah. You know, life is going to happen on stage just as much as it happens yeah. off stage. Yeah. You know, but the, it's the showing up that matters. And, you know, before I let you go, I, wanna, I just want to touch on that bit mm -hmm. as, as a final mm -hmm. bit because I don't think it's any mistake or any accident that you called your body of work heroic, mm -hmm. heroic public speaking. Mm -hmm. I just want to talk about the bravery and the fear yes. because without the fear that we have, yes. There would be no bravery. There would be no heroicism in our own lives. doesn't matter whether anyone else thinks we're a hero. Yes. There would be no heroicism for ourselves and how we consider ourselves to be in the world. Yes. What are the keys? Are there any keys to feeling that fear, that natural kind of sensation that we get when we realize that this is, everybody's looking and this is going to matter? Mm -hmm. How do we get up and past that and then do it again and again and again to achieve the mastery that you and I have been talking sure. about? Sure. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we've addressed a few different, you know, um, approaches that you can take, you know, to reduce the fear. One, of course, is better preparation is just naturally going to make you feel more secure because you know what you're going to do before you do it. And then secondly, taking the focus off yourself and putting it on the experience you're trying to create for the audience so that you realize and you approach the work from the perspective of the development of a product in service of that audience rather than the development of a personality in service of that audience. Because the product is something that you can keep working on. The personality, although yes, 
in, in more traditional psych- psychology terms, your personality is not fixed. But if you think that you have to fix yourself to be a better speaker, you probably won't get much better because you're not broken. There's nothing to fix. You might be well served by learning stage craft so that you're improving your ability to use the sounds of the words, uh, to use your voice, to breathe, uh, to move on stage. Uh, you know, you learn the craft of blocking and staging. All of these are technical things that you learn. And those are things that you can learn quite quickly. And, and, I, and I, I'll, use, um, I'll use something that I'm trying right now as an example to try to demonstrate this. You see, I think that very often in our culture, we overemphasize the value of talent and underemphasize the value of practice. You know, when an article, I mean, look at almost any article about an Olympian or, a, or some big author or a big speaker or whomever, and they, they focus on their gifts and their talents and their uniqueness and how special they are and what's so different about them. And then we read that and we go, oh my God, how on earth am I ever going to be anything other than what I am right now? Because these people are somehow blessed and gifted. I don't have that kind of talent. So, so if you think that, that a lot of talent is a, is a prerequisite for, for doing this work or almost any work uh, outside of, you know, maybe, uh, you know, look, if you want to be a professional basketball player, you know, you're going to need some size. That's important, right? There are certainly some things in some areas where it's important, but for what, and when I say you, I mean the listener, for what you are going to do. Do you need to have outsized talent? And I think the answer is probably no. You don't need to be, the reason I mentioned Steve Martin earlier is because Steve Martin says, I had no discernible talent. I couldn't act, I couldn't sing, and I couldn't dance. So he came up with his own type of comedy. He learned everything about how everybody does it. And then he said, I don't like it that way. I want to come up with something that nobody does, and I'm willing to break all the rules. He learned all the rules first, and then you realize that Steve Martin created a whole type of comedy that didn't exist. In fact, he invented the stadium experience. He was the first and biggest stadium stand-up comedian in the world. And most people don't know that. Uh, but yeah, he was that big. So um, I mention this because this weekend, my wife and I went to uh, look at some art and some galleries. and we went to a new gallery uh, called the Lockman Gallery here in, near our house in Peddlersville, um, or Peddler's Village, uh, um, Pennsylvania. And I loved this work. I just thought his, his work was absolutely tremendous. It really spoke to me. And I, and I, I said to the artist, look, I'm, I'm interested in learning how to paint just for my own therapeutic, um, purposes. And, and I said, do you recommend a class? What should I do? He said, not, not really. He's like, I'll tell you what, get yourself a sketchbook, get a pencil and just start sketching. And then when you have some stuff, stop by and I'll give you the next step. And when we left, Amy said, Michael, I think you just got an art teacher and not just any old teacher, a master teacher. I mean, this artist is a pretty big deal uh, with an incredible body of work over his career. And so I've been sketching an hour a day and, and it's really fun. And it's, my work is probably at a fourth graders level, I would think. But what I've already realized in, in just this short period of time 
is I'm actually getting better already. And I never thought I could draw. And I had this realization, I wait a minute, I teach this stuff. And yet I had this mental block around a different creative discipline that I couldn't do it because I just didn't have that talent. When in fact, um, you know, you could create something that was technically perfect, but nobody feels anything when they see it. And you can create something that looks like a fourth grader drew it and you'll have people in tears because it's so meaningful because the story is there. So I just say like, if you want to do this work or you want to do any work as hard and daunting and challenging as it seems like it might be as far off as your goal might uh, be right now, as little talent as you think you have, all you got to do is start doing just a little bit of it every day. You know, just work on writing one paragraph for a speech every day and then get up on your feet and try it. Just a little bit, little bit, little bit. And then it just gets more normal. Remember at the beginning we first talked about, you know, something might be common, but it doesn't mean it's normal. If you just practice something a little bit every day so that you get comfortable with the discomfort that comes along with that thing, it starts to become normal. So we can choose to normalize things that scare us, but that we want to overcome. And we can uh, denormalize. I don't think that's a word, but we can make things. <laughs> we'll go yeah, with it. We can make things that are common, but shouldn't be normal, um, foreign to us so that they are not normal. Uh, and then I think we just get better faster because we're not quite so worried about being good the first time we try something. And I'd say some, something else I can promise you on that is if you commit to exactly what you just laid out there, you commit to a paragraph every day, you commit to half an hour every day, you commit to an hour every day, whatever it happens to be, writing, speaking, whatever discipline you're trying to have some mastery around. I can promise you from personal experience and having watched a lot of journeys in this world that you will become more and more enchanted by it. And the more enchanted you become by it, the more it will, it will start to live in you and the more it will start to move through you and the more you will start to become it and the more curious you will become about it. You will fall in love with it is what I'm trying to say at a deeper and a deeper and a deeper level. And it is that love, to use a word that, you know, probably set off alarm bells for a lot of people. It's, it's that love that will take you to the level of mastery that you are seeking yeah. because right now it's just a logical concept in your head. I need this skill, this skill to get better. Yep. But the more you do it, the more enchanted you will become with it, the more you will fall in love with it. And it's the energy of that that will make you compelling. It's the energy of that that will move people to tears. You know what I love, Julie, that you just demonstrated the, the value and significance of making a credible promise. Because mm. you just... You said, I promise you. And you can stand yeah. behind that promise. And it's funny, there's there's no there's no cell in my body Correct. that doesn't believe that to Correct. be true. Finally, I I don't think I can let you go just without touching on the critics mm -hmm. for a yeah. second. Whether they're real, whether they're imagined, yeah. whether they're feared, yeah. um, or whether they already exist. Fear of the critics. Can you can you talk a little bit about how we can get around that, that this fear that people will criticize us, disagree with us, yeah. say, you know, who do you think you are to even be yeah. here? And I also just want to make a small request. I heard you tell this beautiful story about the boy, the old man and the donkey. Yeah. And honestly, for me, and again, I've done a lot of work in this space. It, listening to that story, I got this at a whole different level. Great. So 
There's an Aesop fable about an old man, a little boy, and a donkey. And they want to go to town. They've never been to town. It's their dream. One day they decided to go to town. And, uh, and it was likely because they had just listened to uh, Julie Masters' podcast. And they got really fired up. Like, finally, we're going to do it. Let's go. So off they go. Now, when they started, the old man is on the donkey. And the little boy is just walking next to the donkey. But they passed some people who ridiculed the old man and said, old man, how can you make a little boy walk like that? That's terrible. So they stopped. The old man very slowly got off the donkey and they they stood by the side of the road trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, It took some time, but they eventually decided to switch. So the little boy got on the donkey and the old man walked next to the donkey. But now they passed some people who scolded the little boy and said, little boy, how can you make an old man walk like that? That's terrible. So the little boy immediately jumps off the donkey. They stop by the side of the road. They discuss, what should we do now? They wasted more time. They decided, you know what we should do? We'll both ride the donkey. So off they go. But now they pass some people who humiliated them and said, how dare you put such a load on a donkey that is inhumane? Well, they felt horrible. I mean, the old man jumped off the donkey. He felt so bad. Well, both of them by the side of the road trying to figure out what to do, they did come up with another solution. They decided that they would just walk next to the donkey. Well, off they went. Now they passed some people who laughed at them and said, look at those idiots. They have a perfectly good donkey and they're walking next to it. What is wrong with them? Well, they felt stupid. So they spent more time on the side of the road trying to figure out what to do. They did come up with one final solution. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to carry the donkey. So they did. They picked up the donkey and they carried the donkey. Now they're about to get to town. In order to get to town, you have to cross a bridge, which is over water. And as they're crossing the bridge, the donkey slips out of their hands, falls into the river, and drowns. And the moral of the story is, if you try to please everyone, you might as well kiss your ass goodbye. I was just—I just—I love that story. I love that story, and you know, it feels like—it feels like a kind of a story you'd sit around your, your bedside with your, your children and, and tell. But why I love that story is because, again, having lived this road, having seen many people who have lived this road, there will always be someone. You know, like it's physics, right? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. It does not matter what you say. You could say that the sun is going to come up tomorrow and somebody would go, actually, do you know, this is going to yeah. go a chance that it won't. So yeah. it does not matter what you say. It, and this is important because it's a surrender piece. Yeah. There will always be someone who disagrees with you, either because they actually do or because they're testing it out, because they've had a bad day, because, hey, why not? I'll say it. I'll see what happens. Yeah. There will always be the critics. It doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. So what comes out of your mouth may as well be something that you back with your whole heart. Nice. It may as well be because, again, that's the energy that's going to get you where you want to go. And you and I talked at the very beginning before I even pressed record and, we, and I was saying, you know, there's a, a lot of people who are saying at the moment that my, the podcast should be video because I'm having the conversations anyway. Why not record them? Why not make it a video? And I, my concern with that is that I would fall out of love with it a mm-hmm. little bit because in order for me to, you know, inverted commas, rearrange my face enough to to make it compelling on video, I don't feel like I would listen 
to the degree that I love to listen. And by not listening to that degree, I don't feel like I would have the quality of conversation that I love. And I would fall out of love with it a little bit. And guess what? The primary thing that fuels this podcast is my love for it. That's what gets it through the tough times. That's what keeps it consistent. And anything I do to compromise that means that I'm compromising its ability to survive. And so, you know, what I'm saying is you need to back what you say with your whole heart because that's what will get you where you want to go. And it does not matter what you yeah. say. Somebody will not like yeah. it for some yeah. reason. Yeah. And as long as, you know, I mean, there's, there are two types of critics, aren't there? There's the critics in the cheap seats, you know, they, they, you know, who like to push people down to lift themselves up. And then there are the critics in your head. You don't really have control over the cheap seats, but you, you, although it might not seem like you have control over the critics in your mind, you do actually have more control over them than the folks in the cheap seats. Uh, and so, uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, we, we, we do with our students here is we ask them to make a commitment at the beginning between being a critic and, a, and a, they have to make a choice between being a critic and being a performer. Because our, our philosophy is this. If you criticize the work that others do, and we've all done it, it's human nature. But if you do it regularly in a field that you want to take some risks in, it's likely going to interfere with your willingness to take those risks. Because if you're constantly putting other people down, uh, your assumption is, oh, no one's going to accept what I'm doing either. And so what we find is that if you take a much more expansive, generous, uh, and thoughtful approach and recognize that nobody goes up, say, in, uh, you know, in public speaking or performance on stage, or nobody does a podcast or, uh, or writes an article uh, trying to do a bad job. Everybody's trying to do their best. They may not know how to create the effect that you're looking for. Uh, they may be new and still investigating and trying to build craft, but most people are trying to do their best. So if you assume, oh, okay, they're trying to do their best, I'm not going to criticize them for that. I'm actually going to say, let me look for what works and let me look for what I re resonate with and connect with. And when you do that as a creative artist, at least for me personally, I just find that I'm much more willing to be creative because then I'm not as defensive and uh, I'm not as protective in my work. I'm much more willing to try something. And if people don't love it, I'll go, okay, that's all right. So I just think you can make a choice be a performer or a critic. So when you find yourself criticizing others in an area where you're trying to improve, see if you can just go zip, 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 and just try to try to do away with that. And you may find that it actually builds confidence in yourself because you're just a little bit more graceful and generous uh, in the way that you're thinking about other people's work as well as your own work. Mm. Do you know what? That has to be, I think, the best piece of guidance I have ever heard in this area in terms of taking control. You can't control the critics. You can't control what happens on the day. And I wrote it down. The key to not fearing the critics is to become less of a critic yourself. Yeah. I think that that, um, I'm going to put a full stop nice. there. I think that's probably one of the most powerful pieces of advice in this area that, that I've heard. Michael, thank you so much. Well Thank you for your time, for your wisdom. I feel like we went 
in all the different places and all of them came back to exactly the place where I knew that they would, which is, you know, taking responsibility for stepping up into your mastery and your influence and your voice. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.